We are here today with Michelle Miller. She is the Senior Vice President of Global Marketing at everyone's favorite new hair care brand, K18. Michelle, I'm so excited to have you here. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. I've been such a fan of your content. I love learning about brands. I'm happy to talk about K18 today and, and my path. I have also been seeing you more on TikTok, so I'm super excited about that. Every time I see you, I'm like, yes, she's posting more. Oh my gosh. I tried to do the 100-day challenge. I will get there, but I've definitely been on a weekly content, trying to take up more space and understand the creator side a little bit more. And I have so much respect for everything that creators do. I mean, in your defense, you have a full-time day job, so and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's actually dive into how you got to where you got to now, and you can unpack that as much or have it be as high level as you want. Yeah. So um, my early roots are actually in journalism. Um, and then for the past 10 years, I've been in beauty. I actually, I started in makeup at Too Faced, which was at the time, you know, um, it was a younger brand. It was 15 years old, but it was still indie. Then I transferred into hair at IGK Hair, got a dream job at Kosas, um, and then now I'm at, I mean, actually biotech with K18. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that biotech piece is super interesting to me. So we'll double click on that. But how did you go from journalism into beauty? So I, you know, for me, I always loved telling stories. I'm an introvert at heart and something, you know, in my early days, I was such a reader. So something about journalism, writing, talking to people, learning about new things, um, that was something that I loved. I took to in college and wanted to double down on it. But it once I got into it, I realized, you know, wow, this is a lot of brain power. This is a ton of work. And the ceiling is a bit low, you know, that they don't tell you in college, at least they didn't for me, of like what salary happens in journalism, how competitive it is. And, you know, that was something that after working within it, I realized, okay, I want to take what I've learned here and figure out, you know, how to pivot this and how to be able to, you know, make a six-figure salary. And, be able to do, you know, all the things that I wanted to. Um, and then so after that, you, okay. after that, it looks like you went to um, a, is it, was Harrison Sh- and Schriftman a PR agency? Yes. So I actually pivoted to PR. I thought it was a natural pivot. Um, what, what I didn't know is that the other side of journalism is, you know, gifting PR. It was like this side that I didn't love quite as much, but what I did love was meeting all of the brands, learning the strategy at the time, social media was something super new, um, so it was something I definitely gravitated towards. I was also also living in Orange County and doing a two-hour commute to LA every day. Um, so, you know, I as you can imagine, I was on the hunt for something brand side and something close. And Too Faced yeah. was one of the only brands, beauty brands in Orange County. Actually, Urban Decay and Too Faced started in Orange County, so those um, there's a heritage there. But I got my foot in the door as a marketing assistant. I actually took a lower job knowing that I would be able to go in and rock it, essentially, and wanted to, you know, I really wanted to be in beauty, so I just, I took it. And I'm so glad I did because it was one of those things that was rapid growth. We were a small team. 
Too Faced had actually at the time just been invested by MainPost, which is um, a, um, private equity. And for the first time, um, we were able to put together a really core marketing team and really dig into what Jared and Jeremy, like the core of what they had wanted to start. So I'd say like Too Faced for me was my beauty college and kind of everything I learned about, you know, how to launch a hero product, how, you know, what an influencer was, because that wasn't in the vernacular at the time. And yeah. Did you know Leah Hunsness, who was at Too Faced? You know, she was there right before me. And I definitely heard her name all the time. Like she's definitely an icon. <laughs> you know her? Yeah, yeah. She's a good friend. I actually sometimes um, stay with her in Orange County when I'm in LA. Oh my, oh my gosh. She's like my my mentor in the space. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Actually, she and then she came at the end right when we um right when we sold. She's really yeah. great friends with Jared and Jeremy. It's so cool that you know her. I actually think I saw you tag her once and I I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. She's also great at um, TikTok now and has started posting and she's really taking to it. So, um, you know, Too Faced has such an interesting story because when it comes to billion dollar exits in the beauty space, there really aren't that many in the last 10 years. And they have had such a crazy success story. What would you say contributed to that? What was their secret sauce? It was definitely, I think it for me, the secret sauce comes to three things. I think it's a very strong founder vision, which Jared definitely has. For him, I think at the time it was in Sephora, a sea of black, like NARS, Smashbox, you know, and here, here Too Faced was the sea of pink. It was very nostalgic. It was right before even Glossier Pink. Um, so it was his strong founder vision. We had gotten a team at the time that was very brand driven. And I think that is so important to have that core team. Um, and then social media was something that was huge for us creators or at the time influencers, YouTubers, Instagram, that really ignited the brand at a level that was super global um, and emotional. Mm-hmm. When you say a team that is brand driven, can you say more about that? What does that actually look like? So if somebody's listening to this, they're an early stage beauty founder and they want to create a, a team that really understands brand and can replicate that process, what would that look like? What advice would you give them? It's a great question because I think brand can be a lot of different things, right? Um, for Too Faced and for, you know, for also I think K18, it's been a focus on the product story, the the point of difference, and how that message gets played out, it hasn't been so much a focus of CAC or, you know, um, I mean, that becomes part of it, or like performance marketing is what I'd say. The performance marketing piece comes as a result. I would say honing in on what are the product points of difference, what stands out, what are um, what are consumers? What are people going to gravitate towards? Because there's so many options. And then how do you get that message out there? For Too Faced at the time, it was Instagram and YouTube. Today, I would say the culture is at TikTok, and you know we're we're at a different space, but the formula is similar. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I see. That's what I love about beauty. And that's why I tend to talk about beauty so much is I love companies that are based on a foundation of storytelling where it's so ineffable, it's intangible, and it's hard to exactly quantify or measure. I mean, there are ways you can try to approximate that, but really it's about that founder vision. It's about that compelling narrative that's really captivating and it all comes together. I love that so much and I love witnessing it done well. So I feel like Too Faced is just such a such an OG in that space. And, um, and you know, it has created the blueprint in ways that maybe people don't realize. Speaking of getting the word out there, you were part of the strategy for Better Than Sex, which is one of the most iconic mascaras ever. So can you walk us through some of the learnings about maybe launching a hero product and just sort of managing that process of telling the story around it for anybody who's listening and wants to, again, borrow some of those principles? Yeah. You know, if I had, if I think back, we launched that product in 2014. So it was very early in, um, from a founder perspective, what I saw with Jared is he got a lot of pushback on the name. He got a lot of pushback, even on the color of the tube and pushback from high up people, from investors to retail. He stayed really true to naming it better than sex to making a pink tube. So early on, I think the marketing and sales team were set up with a very strong vision of the product and the product worked incredibly well. So we had that set up for us. Um, And then from a downstream perspective, so once the product comes to market, we say like, we're going to bring it downstream. Um, And that really was getting at the time, someone that absolutely loved it. So we gifted it, we sampled it, we gifted gifted it. At the time we did Ipsy, we did, you know, we gifted everyone we could think of. And then we just watched and see, and basically just social listened and saw like we were looking at to see who was taking to it. So at the time it was this really large creator, Dolce Candy, and we made her our better than sex ambassador. So that was something that at the time was really, you know, unheard of. It's something that's people do all the time now, right? Um, But what I equate that to is someone that loved the product in a very real way that was able to tell our product story. And then we were able to do brand-driven content that was real. Um, Mm -hmm. If I were to take that today, I think that formula still works. Um, For us, Like that is the number one thing at K18 that we look for is we gift the product, we blanket the people, as much as we can. And then we kind of see who actually, who authentically, who has it changed lives for? Because you can't, people know, like we know when something is fake. Um, and yeah, so it has to be real. Yeah. I mean, it's easier with K18 because it literally transforms people's hair and lives. So, um, I mean, easier relative to other companies, but I think Too Faced also had such amazing award-winning products. So, When it comes to launching a hero product, in summary, you would say, figure out, first of all, it sounds like stay true to the vision, the creative vision of how, of what it is and how to tell that story, obviously have a good product. That's fundamental. And then gift it, figure out who resonates with it, who genuinely loves it. And then forge, maybe explore a formal partnership with them in some capacity. Would you say that that's kind of an accurate way to describe the book? way to describe the flow. Um, And I think the gifting, it sounds so simple. 
Um, but it's such an important piece. And I'd say it's not something that you do for a return, if that makes sense. Like you're actually gifting to gift from a real way to get it out there. And I know that can cost a ton of money, actually, but it is so worth it. What are some lessons you've learned over the course of working at all these different brands? What are the lessons you've learned about influencer marketing and gifting and seeding? What are some non-obvious takeaways that you have learned over time? Um, I think for me, I really believe if you can to keep influencer relations in-house at a brand. Um, And if not, then I think it's, I think that's fine. But I think the overall flow of it needs to be always on. So um, the piece of gifting that is that is to get new people into the community, that is to introduce the brand. Um, I would also say that it's, it's a lot of elbow grease. So in term, when I think of influencer marketing, I don't think of it as something that's like numbers, data, like it's that, but it's also real relationships and real people. So I think that is something that you need a team for. For me, my philosophy, again, is to do that in-house. I actually have a team of, of six that, um, that work on community, that work on social, that work on creator relationships. And that's something I think that's been a key piece at all the brands that I've worked at. Um, and I'd say that, yeah, that's been probably the secret sauce of, of high growth is the relationships that a brand has and the way that it tells its story and how it shows up in the world, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. yeah. And I think the meta insight here is there aren't any shortcuts. You have to, it takes time to build relationships, but they pay 100%. off in the end. Yeah. And would you say that that is one of the common mistakes that maybe early stage brands make is trying to approach it in too much of a transactional way? And then also what are other common mistakes you see early stage early stage brands making as far as marketing more broadly and also influencer marketing? Yeah, I think it's tough. It's a great question. I think that influencer marketing, early mistakes could that I've seen are not taking it in-house when you, when you can. So, um, I, you know, I say that with like a pause because I don't want to make anyone feel like they, because it's, it's right. It's a lot of money to raise and to, to activate. Um, I would say that if, if you can take it in house, that is amazing. If you cannot, then it's finding a partner that can help you actually get touch points. So if you have an agency, maybe it's, you know, create, have that agency create a brand email if they're down to do that or, um, create community gifting events or events where you can get FaceTime with creators to actually build that rapport. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one is not gifting. I think that's one of the easier ones um, is if you don't have a team, send product as much as you can. Yeah, that makes sense. And you said earlier, it's important for that flow to always be on. Do you mean just keep building those relationships? Don't have seasons where that's turned on and off 
but rather always have it like, you know, yes. a big I part think, of your marketing mix. Yes. And I think for each brand that there's probably a niche of creators or a community that makes the most sense. For K18, it is most definitely hairstylists um, and hairstylists, specifically probably colorists, but hairstylists of all different kinds of hair types and textures. Um, at, at Too Faced, we definitely had a specific core group of makeup artists and like people that love makeup. Um, so I think it's important to lean into that core niche community and then branch out from there, like basically get your base group of advocates and people, your cult following. You always talk about that. Mm -hmm. So how did you guys build that community of hairstylists in particular? Because I know you work very closely with them. You hooked me up with John at Spoken Wheel, which was amazing. It was like the best haircut I've ever gotten in my life. And I'm like, I need to book a flight to New York just to get another haircut because my hair is getting so long. Um, But how did you, especially in the early days, approach that when you guys were kind of more of an up and coming brand? Would you just cold email people, ask for intros, and then ask them, hey, do you want to try this and let us know what you think? How did you tactically go about that? That is so tough as a young brand to even to even gift your products, to get people to open it and try it, I would say is so hard. Something that we did early on was really lean into experts in the arena. So you mentioned John Raymond. He has, I think, less than 100,000 followers. So for us, it wasn't about necessarily how many followers, but it was about true credibility. And we were able to find very credible hairstylists to send the product to other hairstylists. We started early on a a pro stylist Facebook group. Um, So it was really important in the early days to get it to the right people um, and to not be stingy with product. So we gifted, I want to say, thousands of hairstylists globally early in. And K18 was able to do that through our distributor relationships distributor, I can never say that word, um, globally. But in the US, we did it basically cold call, like DMs, just any way that we could. Mm -hmm. And now where does that community live? Is it mostly just direct relationships with a lot of these stylists and salons? Or do they all still live in the Facebook group? Or how do you manage that community? And where does it live? So we actually have a community team that manages our stylist community. And what's amazing about that is a lot of our community team are um, former hairstylists or still practicing. So it's really important, I think, for um, for the people that lead our community to speak the same language. Um, so that's been a, re- a really big game changer for us. Our hairstylist community lives globally in different places, right? Not all hairstylists are even on social media. So we try to make sure that we have different touch points. Um, I almost lost like the initial question, but overall, like the community lives, we have, oh, we have, and we also have a core group of 250 stylists that are our stylist collective. And those are people that um, we have a team and we do different events and special gifts and we really treat them as our our VIP core community. Mm -hmm. Would you say it's almost like a brand ambassador program, but the ambassadors are all stylists basically? Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. I, the the episode that um, we actually published this past weekend was with Michaeline DeJoria, who's the CEO of John Paul Mitchell Systems. And a really big takeaway, yeah, that was awesome. She is just such, she's so inspiring. And the big takeaway for me from that conversation was they really emphasize they orient the entire company around their relationship to stylists. And that's what they've been doing for 40 plus years, which is why they're the largest privately owned. Yeah, Yeah. they really are the blueprint. And even during COVID, they were creating this, what they called a a hairstylist stimulus um, package that they would send out to their stylists who were obviously financially suffering because of COVID. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was so interesting. And it sounds like you guys also have such a deep relationship with your stylists because it's almost like if you really take care of that relationship, then the other kind of word of mouth stuff that will fall into into place. Definitely. I think that's been key for us is taking care of our core community um, and doing it like Suveen is our founder. He's He will call stylists himself, like have the conversations. And I think having that, again, that real connection is key for, and it's been key for K-18, especially in the early days when no one knew who we are, what we were, you know, now, now stylists know who we are and it's been amazing. (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) Um, When it comes to feedback on the product and formulations, are they actively, do you guys incorporate them actively into the process and sort of send them versions of the product and get their feedback? Yeah. So they're actually, we've created an entire stylist feedback loop from the very beginning. So actually our, our VP of innovation, she, I would say the entire company has a very direct line to stylists. Um, and that's been something that's been very important to our founder because if, if pro stylists are our North star, they actually need to be our North star. And we, we, Mm -hmm the executive team needs to be talking to them. So that's something that is from the very beginning of the product development process and then also throughout the end. So we're um, we're launching a new product and at the end of March, I'll be sure to send it to you. Um, but we actually had hairstylists as the models in the campaign and throughout. So that's been super fun. Mm. I, well, I can't wait for that product because you guys are very selective and thoughtful about how you roll out new products. So I'm curious about how this actually impacts your role. If stylists are your North Star, are you? do you think about yourself as segmenting your role into marketing to stylists and also separately to consumers who are not stylists? Yeah, that's a really great question because it's two really different audiences I would definitely say pro stylists are the North Star in the sense of how we create product and why, but we also know that stylists at their core are creating and wanting to do things for their clients. So it's really, it's very circular. We know that if we serve the stylist, that we are ultimately serving the client and the end Mm -hmm. consumer. From an actual brand perspective, we've put the majority of our budget into pro stylists. So first year, we didn't really do creator contracts that were not stylists unless it was a really special case. Once we launched at Sephora, that changed, but we're still very stylist driven. So we even hit our 
you know, our core demographic of, you know, consumers like you and I, we hit them through stylists and we try and get the K-18 story out there through a hairstylist. Because, you know, once you hear something from your stylist, you listen to them like they're your hair doctor. Mm -hmm. So um, we've even been able to get, you know, um, like Haley Bieber's hairstylist or Selena Gomez's hairstylist. They've found out about K-18 through their, their people, which I love. How does the marketing message differ between how you talk to stylists versus non-stylist regular consumers? I would say it's interesting. We Our Instagram, I would say, is very stylist-driven, so a lot of the content is pro-first. And we talk to them like our artists, we also have our social team. A lot of them are former hairstylists, so they know how to speak hairstylists, quote unquote. For TikTok, it's very much more entertainment, top of funnel. Um, it, it features a lot of pro stylists, but it also features a lot of everyday people. Um, so I would say that's how we've geared the content. Um yeah, I think we've been very mindful on being a pro stylist brand that is science and innovation first. So you know, I think today people even want to get con- like, I don't know. I think content is, I just lost my train of thought. No worries. Okay. Um, sorry about the. Oh, no, no, no. Um, yeah. So uh, does that mean that you guys have a community of stylists that you're targeting, obviously, but also a separate community of creators that are not stylists that you also have to have a dedicated team member to manage. What does that look like? Yeah, we we think of our community as as one K-18 community. We have our core North Star, which is pro stylists. Now, two years in, post Sephora launch, um, where we are at today, our community has definitely grown. We think of it as, you know, everyone that loves hair, essentially. So we've actually grown. We have, we have a lot of science and skincare creators in our network. Um, so I would say that we've definitely scaled and grown. To do that, we've had to grow the team. So we didn't start with a team of seven. We've grown into that. And when I say seven, that is just for social media influencers. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been fun to scale the business with the brand and with how large our community has gotten. Let's talk about your role, Senior Vice President of Global Marketing. What does that mean? Yeah, it's I would say overall, um, I think of my role as really the brand strategy and getting everybody on making sure that everybody is speaking the same language. My day-to-day, it's really about, I would say, leading high-growth teams. Um, I would say for startup life, it takes a ton of stamina. So sometimes I think of myself almost as like like a spin instructor or a fitness instructor that's like motivating the team to... You're like Robin Arzone on a Peloton bike. A hundred percent. Like... It's a lot. I mean, growing a brand to a unicorn takes stamina. And I would say keeping the team around me happy, 
motivated, um, super engaged, and feeling creative is really important. We are a fully remote team, which is amazing, but also can can get crazy with all the Zoom meetings and and not getting that FaceTime. Um, personally, I think the team loves being remote and having that freedom. So we've been off, able to foster a really great community within K-18. And I think that's been part of the key of winning, right? If you have a happy team, that people can see that on the outside, that level of authenticity. Um, but yeah, we've been really focused on engaging conversations around the future of beauty, which we really believe is biotech. Um, yeah. So in a nutshell, that'd be the day-to-day. I'd say that's what really drives me in my role is that storytelling aspect and then seeing those unique challenges of how the internet and social media shape a brand. Because I think at the heart of it, um, where a brand meets, meets culture is where my passion is. And yeah, so I'm, I'm very entrepreneurial at heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where does that role sit within the organization for anybody who's trying to visualize, yeah. okay, a CEO of global marketing, and it might look different in, on different teams, but what does that look I would definitely say it looks different on different teams. At an indie startup, I report directly into the founder um, within the executive team. So that's been, it's been really great to be in the kitchen. We actually just started adding on to our leadership team. So we have an amazing CFO and COO. Um, So it's been awesome to watch that scale. But yeah, yeah. it's, it's then, very, I would say it's very similar to a CMO role w- within, right, uh, yeah, even at, like, I know my colleague at Too Faced, who's the SVP slash CMO, they don't have CMOs a lot of time at strategics. So that SVP mm-hmm. title takes that role. Mm, okay. That is actually pretty clarifying. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of what you're saying echoes what Katie Welch was saying in our interview about rare beauty and her role oh, there. Is especially when it comes to aligning the team, keeping everyone motivated and fulfilled and getting the best work out of them and figuring out how to herd all the cats, you know? Oh, so yeah. um, totally. <laughs> think about it, like, right, you have the CEO and you have the CFO that's in charge of the capital, COO in charge of the operations. I always think of the CMO as like the unseen fairy, like fairy dust. It's not necessarily on the PL. Um, but it's what is driving the growth and the sales of the brand. So I see that head of marketing, CMO, SVP role is like very important in terms of the early stage driving the business. It's interesting though, it's strategics, I've noticed because um, the way that strategics scale, right, it's usually global. And once a brand goes to strategic, the, the markets get broken up, right? So you have head of brand and global, and then you have North America, you have, you know, Europe, and then everything kind of gets segmented. I love being at a brand like right before that. um, And then kind of getting, getting the brand there to, to scale. But yeah. When it comes to that storytelling function, and I love the way you articulated that, that feels like an aha moment to me when you said, 
where brand meets culture, because I feel like that is why I love covering the kinds of brands that I cover. And I had never thought about it in those terms, but I'm going to borrow that from you. When it comes to that kind of brand storytelling, what specifically when it specific to K-18, what are some of the questions that you have had to figure out as far as, okay, we've built this amazing thing. We have this amazing product. Now, how do we get it out into the world? How do we get the world to care about it, understand it, want to try it? So what are some of those specific challenges or puzzles or questions that have come up around that brand storytelling piece? There's always a lot, I think, of questions that come out of a brand storytelling. I think something to help kind of guide the questions that are going to come up and, you know, through different world events, through through what happens, you know, in life is early on what we did was we created a specific charter and really worked very closely with the founder on what big picture, like what is your why? Why are you doing this? Um, and so we were able to put that into a charter for the company. So very like, you know, things like, you know, fuck the hierarchy, like things like that were very from Suveen's mouth, kind of the spirit of a company that he was trying to create. So early on, we were able to create that world of what the brand was. I think from an ethos, you know, honing in on what was really important. So outside of the product. So it was, you know, pro stylists are the North Star. It was biotech as the future of beauty. It was, you know, making sure that there was a level of simplicity and curation and we weren't just throwing products out into the world. So I think having a really clear vision of who the brand is, why it's there, what it stands for creates um, almost this roadmap of how you're going to navigate and launch it. So, you know, we were lucky in that our founder had raised quite a bit of capital to be able to get it out into the world because he truly had this patented innovation. I wouldn't say everyone should raise a ton of capital. Um, He definitely, he knew what he had. So he, had the confidence to do that. And then I always say I had the confidence to spend it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that like mix was able, that was, that mix of the two of us, I think was very helpful. And, you know, I took a big bet on TikTok at the time. It was like, is a $75 product going to resonate on a Gen Z platform? Um, But I, for me, it wasn't like, oh, it's a Gen Z platform. This is this is the driver of culture right now. Just like Instagram was the driver of culture in 2013. Um, and I always see that culture starts from the youth and moves up. So even if, you know, maybe someone's not on TikTok, they're definitely still getting influenced by TikTok and by the youth that's so true. Yeah. I I think you you are so I think the best marketers I have talked to are just so curious and they genuinely love the shifts in platforms and strategies that are happening and they love studying what's going on and they're just so voraciously curious and you have that. I think Katie has that. I think a lot of I mean Leah has that. I mm-hmm. I admire that so 
guys. Yeah, and with Alexander Angel Angelique. Super curious too. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. I'm curious about what advice you would give to brands that have more premium products where they might assume. I mean, these days, everybody knows you have to be on TikTok, but let's say there are a few holdouts and they're concerned about whether their product would actually perform on TikTok or whether TikTok as a distribution channel would work for them. What advice do you have as far as the learnings that you've gleaned from selling maybe a a product that might be a little bit um, beyond typical assumed Gen Z budget? What have you learned about that? I think the biggest learning is how you explain value. So for K18 specifically, $75 for, you know, a three like a, a small product sounds expensive. But if you can put it into the context of you only need one pump, it lasts you a lot, it lasts you double the time the the time of, you know, a traditional mask that's out there. And then if you know if you're able to communicate that point of difference. So for us, it's like, it's truly getting inside your hair. There's truly this um, superiority and innovation. So that for us was key in communicating why the price point is at where it's at. It's different probably than, you know, I recently bought the Isamaya um, lipstick that is $95 and shaped like a penis. I, you know, that, you know, that is a different, I think, value than K18. But um, each was each story was told, I think, in a very good way. And Isamaya sold out, and K18 is flying off the shelves. So I think that I think the way that you tell that value is is very key, or the way that you sell or talk about it. Yeah. I, I do think that people tend to have misconceptions about TikTok. I mean, I'm actually in a few weeks going to be doing this free workshop on TikTok 101 for startups, for tech startups, including mm-hmm. B2B startups, fintech, health tech, whatever. Oh web I love your Dennis Hudson ads, by the way. <laughs> because I, I, I think a lot of startup founders are curious about TikTok, but they're like, mm, is it going to work for my B2B SaaS company? But I am very adamant that it works for a lot more brands than people realize, including sort of more tech heavy stuff. And, and, and it's just interesting to hear that, you know, in my own way, I found a way to connect to amazing people like you through my TikTok. People assume that you can't do that. And then you guys have also been able to build this really robust TikTok strategy. Um, I'm curious about the communication of what makes the brand value, the product valuable when it comes to really conveying, okay, this is this incredible technology. It's this biotech product actually that's just being bottled up. So when you really think about it, it's actually kind of a steal that it can transform your hair for one pump, right? And it's in this little bottle that you can just buy from the internet or from Sephora. How do you balance, how do you find the balance between getting too technical and overwhelming with your storytelling and conveying the true scientific value? It's a great Another great question. Um, we've definitely boiled it down into mes- a messaging strategy, and K eighteen has a very, I would say, clear. We have a very clear messaging strategy in that we can say what we do in a boiler, in in a few words, and then you can layer down into that. So on our owned channels, so the channels that K eighteen owns and where we make content. We're really conscious on, okay, social media is very top level. 
Um, we might get deeper in our Science Sundays and our blog. We will get deeper on our website, on our owned content, um, in our in our different like Facebook groups. And then we also have our earned content. And that is something that we're also really strategic with. So we actually have a science, what we deem our K-18 science squad. It's, it's very unofficial, but we have a amazing group of science creators that we meet with regularly and they actually meet with our R&D team. And um, they've been able to get the word out there on a deeper science level. So we really think of it as a layered approach, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we actually have an editorial calendar that, you know, it's almost like back to my journalism days of, of how a newspaper would run, like the content and, you know, what is going where? Are these features more in depth? Are these like a tweet? Um, so that's kind of fun. It's, it's almost like a newsroom. Mm-hmm. I can see clearly how your prior love of storytelling has really come to life in the role that you're in now. And I feel like that's often the case with people navigating, especially the early phases of their career, right? You you know, you have some clues about what you like and what you're interested in. You go into a role where you think you'll be able to do that. And then you realize, wait, there are all these things I didn't know about the realities of this specific role. And then you keep sort of like iterating until you find where that really comes to life. Yes. I think that was huge. I mean, I started in marketing when I was 29, so it was definitely felt late, late. Um, And I would say that I'm so like 10 years later, it's been a life-changing career choice that has, you know, given me the salary that I dreamed of and the life (laughs) to be able to take care of my family and be Mm -hmm. um, creatively satisfied. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um I have there been any evolutions in maybe not the charter because it sounds like you guys really did a deep dive and developed that charter in the beginning based on the core values of the founders. Have there been major evolutions in the messaging or the way that you convey the values or the value prop of K18? There's definitely been a lot of emotion around it in in getting to where we've gotten, um, because I think when you're an early startup, when you have something special, there's going to be a ton of opinions on how to say something. If something is too complicated, we really see messaging as iterative and, um, it, you know, posi- product messaging, positioning the way that you write your ads, all of that should change, right? It's kind of a feedback loop. So it's not necessarily static. It's very fluid. We've really leaned on, you know, that K-18 reverses damage in four four minutes. And that has probably been like the key mess. Like if if you're going to know what K-18 does, it reverses hair damage in four minutes. Um, But you can definitely go so much deeper on why it's special. Um, so yeah, I would say that it's been an iterative process and we've definitely changed things along the way. Um, but the core of it has stayed true, but yeah, we've definitely cleaned up and tightened up and changed it. What about the way that you think about channel mix? So I, I interviewed him last week, but 
in general, my friend Kevin Gold, who you actually know, we were all in Miami together. Oh, yeah. uh, so Kevin, I've heard him say, you know, these days, because he's so good at thinking about sort of, you know, performance marketing and and especially that side of things. And in general, he's, I think, um, so good about staying up to date on how things are shifting. He likes to say that there's not a single channel that's the silver bullet these days, right? Maybe like six, seven years ago, it was Facebook ads, pour as much into Facebook ads as possible and sort of capitalize on that arbitrage opportunity. But these days, it's just everything needs to be a well-oiled machine. You need to be doing all the things basically, and they all need to really seamlessly work together as this full funnel. Would you echo that sentiment? And also, how do you guys think about you know what channels are really working now or that you're particularly um, enthusiastic about? Yeah, I, you know, I see it as an orchestra, right? So you can't, different things get played at different times. And like, we don't only focus on TikTok, so to speak. Uh, We definitely have that full funnel approach. I would say that we lean into brand marketing more than performance marketing in the sense as if we know that if the brand marketing is working, performance marketing is that much easier. Um, so what we do is we really fuel um, the creator side of TikTok. We really fuel um, the gifting, the relationship building. And what we found is that the performance channels work better as a result So from a metrics perspective, we're looking at brand awareness as a young brand and the way we're not just looking at conversion, we're looking at traffic, we're looking at did search go up, you know, um, did our earned media value go up? And then from there, we take the learnings from a paid perspective. Um, so, So I would say from a channel mix, leaning into brand, we still have a full funnel on performance marketing. K-18 is omni-channel, so it's not just D to C that brand is driving. We're driving a global brand across Pro and Sephora. Um, so that, so in doing that, we're really focused on how do we get K-18 out there top of funnel and then catch them at the bottom with amazing content and sampling and all those good things. Mm-hmm. I love that insight about, you know, the better your brand marketing is working, the more it sort of unlocks the effectiveness of your performance marketing. I think that's a really good insight. Yes. Our role is amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. Do you guys do any um, IRL activations, pop-ups, sort of community events? Yes, we do. We're actually, um, we're doing an in-person pop-up in May at the Grove LA. I hope you can come. Um, And then we do, we're going to be at South by Southwest also come to that. Um, but we, have, we definitely have we have a lot of IRL coming up. We're really excited. We have been really focused on in-person stylist events first, um, but we're rolling out into a few um, more general consumer events. So at South by Southwest, we're doing an event at Al's Boots um, where we're giving out cowboy hats and cowboy boots. Um, so I hope I'm selling you on joining. And yeah. But yeah, and then we're at the Grove, we have our first bigger pop-up over Mother's Day weekend. Is it at that um I used to live by the Grove. Is it at that little booth like standalone booth that's right across from Nordstrom? We were gonna do the glass box, um, but we're actually we're doing it's right gonna be right outside of Sephora. 
Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. Got it. I will definitely be there. I will reorient my travel plans just to make it to all the K-18 events. Oh my gosh. And if you ever need help with travel plans, please let me know because I know you're coastal. And- <laughs> I'd love to help. So- Especially if you're in Orange County. <laughs> I know. I need to. I need to make it down there to see you and Leah. For for these more consumer focused, non pro stylist events, how do you think about the objectives? Is it do you do you think about specific KPIs or objectives, or are you really just thinking we want to just create something for our customer base, build awareness, um, or are there more specific kind of objectives around these events? It's definitely. I would say. The KPIs are around brand awareness, so that would mean the earned media value, the actual relationships, and how many hands can we get our product in where someone will talk about it and get that authentic word of mouth that is the best. Mm -hmm. Are there channels and strategies that you guys haven't explored much that you're personally excited to look into more or do or anything that's coming up on the horizon that you're excited about? You know, we're really focused on education. So we're trying some different educational activations. Um, We're actually going to be creating an Oculus experience for both stylists and consumers. And it's, um, I, I would say it's a metaverse experience, but not to shop. It's really much more of like an education. Can we show you how to get inside of a hair fiber and really explain the science, almost like um, uh, the magic school bus back in the day, like where they would explain things. Um, So I would say that really excited about that. We've definitely never done Oculus education or anything with the metaverse from a pro stylist lens. Um, We're also, we're doing um, some really big like billboard out of home for our next launch. So yeah, trying some yeah. big bets, I would uh, say. We saw all of the Super Bowl happening within beauty. And so that was interesting for sure. That was definitely interesting. Yeah. I mean, the Fenty beauty team. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So well done. Um, we didn't get to talk too much about your time at COSAS, but mm-hmm. with the time that we have, I'd love to know some key takeaways that you had, learnings that you had as a marketer there. Oh my goodness. Um, so with COSAS, I got to work with Sheena, who's such a visionary founder. I actually went to the same high school as her. So I got to watch her build COSAS from the ground up from a friend level. Um, and yeah, I actually started there. I love to say this, but I started there on 11-11, which is so, so fun. Um, I was only there for a little bit over a year, but got to launch Revealer Concealer with the team. And um, the biggest learnings I would say there was um, Sheena's level of vision for COSAS. Like, I think people felt that outside of the brand. So it was really interesting to, like, literally be in her kitchen with her and and build COSAS and get it to that next level. Um, we launched in Sephora and... It was just what I found about COSIS is like people just really take to to what Sheena's trying to say. And it was another one of those very easy to market stories. Um, but yeah, it was so fun. They're they're gonna kill it this year. Yeah. 
So your strategy is to find incredible visionary founders and amazing products that make your job a little bit easier. And then you blast it to the world. Oh my gosh. Yes. And then with the team, then I, I'll build the team to, to blast it into the world. Um, I, I do love this through line of these visionary founders. So, you know, with Too Faced and with Sheena at Kosas and Suveen at K18, obviously all incredible founders and true visionaries. Who are some other founders in the industry that maybe you haven't worked with specifically or at their companies, but you look at and you're like, wow, that is an incredible visionary founder. Who are some people you admire? Oh my gosh. I would, there's so many out there that are amazing. Um, I definitely have my eye on Issa Maya. I think that she could be the next Tom Ford. Um, Patrick Ta is doing amazing as an indie brand. It's amazing to see um, another Asian American human just growing and killing it. Um, so many. I, Tower 28, Amy at Tower 28 is amazing. Another clean brand. Yeah, Beauty Stat. There's so many. Um, there's so many up and coming brands that have that have that it factor for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love this industry. Huh? What do you think? Oh, that is a really good question. Yeah, I mean, I feel um, similarly about a lot of those. I love. Um, I think what Amy's doing with Tower Twenty Eight is incredible. I really like Diana of Crown Affair. I think she just like the brand is such an extension of her and I love that. Um, and also Elaine is amazing too there. Um, I, I mean, there are so many, I feel like I'm going to have a brain fart and exclude people, but I have probably made videos about a lot of the ones that I, I admire. I love all your videos on the brands. I love, <laughs> another one I've been watching. I don't know if you saw Shark Tank on Monday, but youth Fiona from Euphoria oh, was on yes. Yeah, she's great. And she's so good at, at TikTok too. So she's really good at sort of like um, adapting to like the the new playbook. Um, yeah, I mean, there there are so many, but I, yeah. I, yeah. And the entire True Beauty Ventures portfolio probably. And <laughs> totally. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I'd love to wrap up with um, – one piece of advice you have for aspiring marketers in particular, it can be career advice. It can be about your marketing philosophy. It can be anything tactical, but what's one piece of advice that you would want to leave people with? From a career perspective, I would say take a chance. Maybe, you know, if you want to get into beauty, for me, it was taking a position that I knew I would grow out of very quickly. And that is something I always think of even today. Um, and then from a overall marketing advice for me, um, I have a very specific skill set. I think most people do. So from a marketing perspective, I've been really conscious of surrounding myself with people that have different skill sets. So, you know, I have amazing partners around me. So I would say that is something to keep in mind when you're building something of, you know, who's around you. And especially in that startup space, every, everybody counts a lot. Mm -hmm. Thank you for those words of wisdom. Michelle, this was amazing. It's always a delight to talk to you. You are so 
full of gems. And I can't wait to listen back to this because I feel like it was really densely packed with insights. So thank you so much. Thank you, Dolma, for having me. I hope we get to see you in person soon. And I am here in your network if you ever need anything. If you ever need, if you want to come to LA for a week to network, I am here. Just please hit me up. We have so many um, insights into like places to stay through our investor network. So please let me know. I always see like the fun Airbnbs you get. Um, (laughs) Also, we have amazing hairstylists in San Francisco and the Bay Area. So even if you're in Sacramento or come back to LA. Yeah. Uh, yes to all of the above. And then next time I have uh, a dinner I'm hosting, would love for you to come. Oh, yes. The last yes. one was awesome and we love you. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. Um, well, thank you. And I let's stay connected for sure.